In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. gentlemen welcome back to the true life podcast we are here with an incredible individual he's a board certified psychiatrist professor of psychiatry at new york medical psychoanalyst at columbia university and the author of a fascinating new book called demonic foes it's by dr richard gallagher and it's his 25 years as a psychiatrist investigating possessions diabolic attacks and the paranormal Dr. Richard Gallagher, thank you so much for being here. Did I leave anything out in that introduction? Uh, I think you got the key points, and uh, thank you for the invitation, George. Well, it's my pleasure to be here today. And uh, I got to tell you, as I was reading the book, it, it wasn't an easy read. There are some parts in there that made me put the book down for a minute and have to contemplate my own spirituality. It's, it's, it's fascinating. But before we get too deep into that, can you maybe introduce the, the way you got to be here from maybe skeptic to, to investigator or, or how did this whole thing come about? Well, I always tell people that uh, I never volunteered. Um, you know, basically as a, as a physician, I, I try to help people. And that's been my, my major motivation over the years. There was a priest who came to my office and he asked me to help him evaluate a case. I mean, later I was asked to join an international association called the International Association of Exorcists. I'm now the longest standing American member, mainly because when I joined, I was a relatively young guy and everybody else has passed on to their reward. Um, <laughs> but it's a group of 500 exorcists. I'm not an exorcist, obviously. I'm a scientific advisor. Uh, and then I was asked to write a book, and believe it or not, George uh, Jason Blum, you may have heard that name, uh, pretty big name in Hollywood. He um, he wants to make a movie out of the book. So uh, I'd like to think it's a little 
we would use the word providential that I just got sort of pulled into the field, never volunteered. And I'm not sure it's a good idea to volunteer. Yeah, I, I, it comes through in the book, you know, when you, the way you wrote it, I think you got a lot of feelings in there and you were able to demonstrate to the reader some of the feelings you were feeling with Julia and the cats and, you know, even Father Jacques or Priest Jacques coming to you in the beginning. He seems like a pretty interesting individual, this gentleman. He was a very kind man and, and a very smart priest. And at the time, even though this is not that long ago, about 25 plus years ago, there were, there were very few exorcists, at least Catholic exorcists in the United States at the time. And so all of a sudden, this somewhat rumpled uh, looking priest, pleasant guy, comes to my office and says, Dr. Gallagher, I'd like you to evaluate a case um, where uh, I think there's something demonic. And I had just I had just graduated George from uh, my residency at Yale. And I and, and at that time, there was kind of this what we called satanic panic where people were saying Satanist all over the place. And so I said to him, well, with all due respect, Father, I'm a little skeptical of that stuff. And he uh, he chuckled a little bit and he said, well, then Dr. Gallagher, you're the perfect man for the job. Because he wanted someone to be rigorous and, and someone to ask questions. I mean, it turned out he, he uh, asked me to evaluate this woman who had bruises all over her body. Obviously, I had to rule out any kind of medical problems or abuse or anything. She had claimed that she was getting beaten up, literally beaten up by invisible spirits. And at the end of my uh, evaluation and medical workup of her, I came to the conclusion. I said, look, uh, look, Father, you're, you're right. There's no medical or psychological explanation for this. And he said, well, that's exactly what I thought. Thank you for validating my view that this woman has not a possession, but what they call, at least in America, terms differ from country to country, but uh, what we tend to call an oppression. Mm. And after that, I just kept seeing more and more of these cases. Uh, uh, he and a colleague of his who did the eventual exorcisms on that Satanist woman you, you were mentioning, um, they would travel all over the country seeing cases because there were so few. So I wound up seeing a tremendous amount of cases. In fact, my my chairman of psychiatry, who, who was a Catholic, a very prominent American Psychiatric Association president, said to me, I've probably seen more of uh, these cases than any other doctor in the world and maybe any maybe any other doctor in history just because, you know, we have the telephone, we have Zoom and that sort of thing now. Yeah, it's, I want to, I want to say to, the book is really well written from quoting Dostoevsky to sometimes I laughed out loud, especially in your description of uh, when you first met uh, Father Jacques and you said, here comes this crumpled old man. It's probably because his pants haven't been pressed. You know, there, there was some really good, like one liners in there that I, I, I move between different emotions. So thank you for writing it in a way they kind of took you through this emotional areas and made you laugh and, and made you think. And I'm curious, how was it when you first met this case and you were skeptical about it? And then there was all these things that happened that you describe in the book that led to the idea that, OK, this has to be something else. Was there like a moment, like a shift in your mind? Like, this is real. This is really happening. 
Yeah, I mean, I suppose I was theoretically open to the idea okay. that some of this stuff could have happened. But uh, certainly in my training as a resident at Yale, I'd never seen anything like it. I knew that there was all this exaggeration about it. So it really took a lot of evidence, George, to convince me. Although pretty soon when I started to see some even more dramatic cases, um, it became pretty clear to me that this, this, this goes well, way beyond psychiatry. I often say to people, uh, colleagues say, I say, well, how many, um, how many psychiatric patients do you, have you had who can all of a sudden speak perfect Latin or, or know all these hidden facts about people or in these rare cases even levitate? Uh, now, while I've never seen a levitation, I've talked to about 35 very credible people who've either reported it to me or witnessed it. So this weird stuff does happen. And after a while, when you get very familiar with it, the way I became, um, uh, you become you, you become pretty darn convinced. Yeah, and it seems that you have found this Ariadne thread that seems to run through the possessions of the 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 inter, inter the entanglement with the occult or even worshiping Satan alone. And there are some dark things like the relationship between Julia and David and some of the things that were happening in there. Like, like you really had to get close. I, I once heard it said that the best trick the devil ever pulled was convincing people he didn't exist and in this book i think you give some real evidence for some dark dark stuff it's 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 tough to read sometimes yeah i was i was happy that harper collins uh let me write the book demonic yeah. foes the way i wanted to write it in other words i i, I told a lot of stories mm -hmm. which people describe as pretty enthralling but it's also a serious book yeah. You know, there's a lot of these uh, slocky or sensationalist books. There, there are books about Satanists where people just make up stuff. Um, so I wanted to write a very uh, credible book as a uh, professor of psychiatry. And uh, every fact is, is, is true. I do change some of the names. For instance, uh, you referred to the well, probably the most dramatic case I ever saw was that woman uh, uh, Julia, that's not a real name, but everything else in the chapter on her is 100% accurate. The way I first, um, the way they first got a hold of me about it was, again, illustrative of, uh, again, these kind of um, extremely odd phenomena that have no naturalistic, we would say, explanation, no materialistic explanation. So I was I was uh, in bed with my uh, wife in the middle of the night, and we had two cats at the foot of the bed. And all of a sudden, these cats, who were fairly well-behaved, placid cats, they started going at each other like two prize fighters, you know, <laughs> in a way we'd never seen before. And we figured, well, maybe it was catnip or something. Who knows? Now, the very next morning, I'd never met this woman, this... Uh, priest, uh, who a lot of people know who the priest is, but I still use a pseudonym, pseudonym uh, Father Jacques, amazingly brings her to my house, which I was annoyed about. Sure. Certain emotions, you know, and I, I said to him, please don't, don't bring Satanists to my neighborhood. <laughs> so uh, now, literally the first words out of her mouth as she was introduced to me 
where Dr. Gallagher, how did you like those cats last night? So I don't necessarily say she caused it, but she, she knew something had happened. And she claimed all kinds of, of, of psychic powers. Um, she was a devil worshiping uh, Satanist. And, and she claimed that she got these powers from the dark side, from Satan himself. Uh, I remember her saying once to me, well, Satan gives me favors. This, this God you believe in, uh, he's never done anything for me. You know, this sort of skeptical type of argument. And um, she, she exhibited quite a few what, what modern people would call paranormal powers right to me. For instance, she could see people. She always claimed to me, George, that she could see people at a distance. Right. Now, this is something the parapsychologists call remote viewing. So it's, it's reported in the, let's say, paranormal literature, which is kind of a pseudoscientific term. It, it doesn't explain anything. And when I asked her about it, she said, yes, uh, it's, it's uh, an ability that I'm not gifted or anything. It's an ability that Satan has given me. So I had a comfortable enough relationship with her because um, I was asked to evaluate her further, even though the exorcist had no doubt that this was a possession. Um, and I myself saw her in trances a number of times and a voice would come out of her. But she said to me once, um, well, I, I can, I can, when I challenged her a little bit, I said, well, I can see the exorcist who was a guy who called himself father. A, I can see the exorcist. Now I knew this guy who had become a friend of mine. He was like a hundred miles away. So I had a comfortable enough relationship with her that I said, okay, Miss Smarty pants, uh, what, why don't you tell me what he's doing and what he's wearing? So she said, I see him. He's walking along the beach. He's saying his uh, mumbo jumbo prayers. Um, and uh, he's got a, a blue windbreaker on and he's got his khakis. So I said, well, I'm going to call him. Okay. So I called him and, and I said, Father, uh, you know, how are things going? What are you doing? He said, well, Rich, normally I would be at the rectory. But uh, today I decided to drive to the beach and I was going to say my breviary, the priest's prayers, walking along the beach. And I said, um, and what are you wearing? And I remember him saying, he was a big, tough guy. I mean, I'm 6'5". <laughs> I'm 6'5". I used to play basketball semi-pro in, in Europe. This guy dwarfed me. He was a 6'7", burly ex-Marine. And uh, when I asked him what he was wearing, he said, who wants to know? <laughs> And I said, well, humor me, Father. And he said, well, I have my uh, windbreaker on. What color? Blue. And uh, I said, what else do you have on? And he said, I, Rich, I, I know what's happening. You're talking to Julia. She's something else. I have my khakis. So she had described him to a T. And, and not only would she do that, George, but she could tell all kinds of things about people. Which again, she claimed that knowledge came from from evil spirits and and specifically from Satan. For instance, she knew how my mother had died twenty years earlier, but she knew like of ovarian cancer. But she also knew how other people had died. So she had what what they call is a fancy Latin word latra, um, and I studied Latin for about ten years. Um, she. Um, 
she had all this kind of hidden knowledge. She'd go into a trance, a voice would come out of her. She obviously had the historical background. So what you do is you take the totality of the case and you say, look, there's no other explanation but something at best paranormal, but in our case, the explanation being uh, something demonic. Man, I can't see that. I've never, I bet you most people have never had something like that happen to them. That can seem to me, like that could seem to be used as a tool of intimidation. Do you think that's what she was trying to do? Well, I think she would try to intimidate people. Again, I had mm. a pretty, I had a pretty right. good relationship with her. She respected talking to a, pre, uh, to a doctor and she knew that she had to talk to me because otherwise she was so ambivalent about the exorcisms that they wanted her to talk pro bono to a to a psychiatrist. I would say the intimidating agents are the evil spirits. They they mm. absolutely want to intimidate and uh, um, confuse us. Picking up on your earliest remark, you know the great Christian writer C.S. Lewis used to say, mm. um, people should not disbelieve in the devil, but they should also not become overly scared or preoccupied with it. And I think that's a good, a good sensible rule of thumb. Yeah, I'm wondering. I in my, just going to throw this out here. I'm wondering. In your office, did you have like the screw tape letters or did she gravitate towards any books in your office or when she was in your office? Was there some sort of, you know, staying away from from idols or staying away from anything that may have a religious figure on it? Or did, could you see any of that happening? Well, I've obviously read a lot over the years and I have a Absolutely. whole library that's, that's right. quite, quite immense about that. I mean, in my office, I remember I had some plants and uh, she claimed that she was a great lover of nature and that, right, right. And, that and that Christians were anti-nature and all this. And she had this whole kind of diabolic philosophy, um, which uh, essentially, essentially was sort of uh, pagan in tone. Uh, she was a she was a thoughtful woman. I felt. I felt sorry for her in some respects because she was scared of the cult. She had told me that she was in love with the cult leader. She was the high priestess. She called herself the queen. And the the leader was a truly nefarious guy. Um, but, you know, people's taste, right? There's no explanation for people's taste. She claimed to be in love with this guy. And she also claimed that if she left the cult, she was going to get harmed. Mm. So for all those reasons, despite the fact that we did some exorcisms, now, again, I, you know, as a family guy, I'm not, I'm a very busy guy. I couldn't travel to her exorcisms. They were not right in my home area. And, um, but they were very dramatic and about eight or nine people would always report to me. She is a case that levitated uh, for about a half an hour, according to eight witnesses, you know, kind of salt of the earth person. She, she spoke foreign languages. The room went cold for a while. Mm. The room went hot. This ex-Marine, Father A, said to me, it was like being at the gates of hell, Rich. Um, but be that it is a May, because, George, she would not really cooperate, you have to, you have to reform your life. I mean, you, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. You can't, yeah. you can't remain worshiping Satan and expect that you're going to get relieved of your possession because it, 
the, the relief of the possession is not really the exorcist, it's from, from God, or as we say, our Lord. And um, she wanted to have it both ways. So eventually she did get scared of the cult and she dropped out. And I, I felt that was very unfortunate because most cases that I've seen, I've seen quite a few cases, I've been to quite a few exorcisms in my life. Most cases do, do get better. So this is an interesting point. I, I, in the book, Demonic Foes, you get into this idea about the difference between a psychiatrist or a doctor and someone who's actually performing the exorcism. And there's real differences there. You say it in the book, Demonic Foes, that, you know, the, it needs to be a priest to perform these, these exorcists. But I'm wondering, are there some crossovers? Like it sounds to me when you see someone who's in a cult, they may have the same psychiatric problems. Maybe they maybe a, a similar history of being abused or being manipulated. It sounds like that there's some manipulation on both sides of the fence. And maybe that's one reason why you were really good at what you did is because you could pr provide not only some of the faith-based background, but some of the psychi psychiatry background, the, the inner workings of the mind. Interestingly, she was, she was not a crazy person in any way. Right. And she was um, a pretty thoughtful person. Right. I mean, in some ways, she was somewhat of an interesting person. Uh, <clears throat> she had had some bad experiences in life, and that probably, it, you know, there's a lot of, there's tens of millions of people right. who have drug abuse and have bad experiences. So, you know, the average person is not, to be worried about getting possessed all of a sudden. She was possessed because she really turned to something very evil. Um, having said that, uh, she was pretty coherent, but she was looking for help. Maybe she was looking for a father figure in the right. guy in the cult, and then I thought later the exorcist. Um, so she had her issues, put it that way, which maybe I could understand a little bit better than some people as a psychiatrist. But I, I, I don't want to act like possession is a is a psychiatric or medical illness. Right. It's right. Not. You have to rule out that stuff. And there are people, people who are schizophrenic, people who are psychotic, people who have so-called multiple personality, people who uh, even people who are evil. Or are very, or other people who are very imaginative. All these people can think they're demonically attacked. I have to rule that out uh, in certain cases. Um, but on the other hand, uh, then then you're left with the real deal. Yeah, once you peel away all of what can be, you're left with what is there. Exactly. It's fascinating to think about. I. I like the way the book moves from case to case. And then there's a lot of history behind different cases. And it talks about how, even though some things happened in the past, you know, you tie it together to the future. And this has been going on for a really long time. And it, it just seems like maybe with Hollywood or over the last 20 years, it has become so sensationalized that it's gotten away from, from, it's done two things, in my opinion. One, it's gotten away from what's really happening, what you describe in the book. And the second thing is it's it's almost been like, uh, gosh, I can't think of the right word, but like just Hollywoodified. You know what I mean? Like it's, they, they sensationalize it in some ways. Well, Hollywood definitely does sensationalize yeah. it. And they, they make it sort of into a magic ceremony. You, right. know? you say the right words. 
It's a little more complicated than that. We believe, and not just in the Catholic Church, but in, 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 in some other religions too. Certainly, they, I know many Protestant uh, deliverance ministers. Um, now, some of them are very expert. Some of them are maybe a little loosey-goosey. <laughs> the fact of the matter is that um, the prayers are very important, but the person also has to reform their life. Uh, some, sometimes people say to me, well, how come only the Christian fundamentalists get possessed? And actually nothing could be further from the truth. This has been reported throughout all history. Uh, sometimes people say to me, as a psychiatrist, you know, Dr. Gallagher, how does it feel to be out of the mainstream? And I said, what mainstream are you talking about? Most people in America believe in the devil and believe in the possibility of possession. Most people around the world you know, maybe not so much in a secular area like Europe, but most people around the world believe in evil spirits. In fact, my book was just translated, believe it or not, into Japanese, where there's a great deal of interest in evil spirits. Um, and if you look at history, you know, I was a classics major at Princeton. I, I, took, I took my studies of history very, very seriously. And I, I became struck as I, as I studied ancient history of how ubiquitous these beliefs were, that throughout the vast majority of history, um, with a few exceptions, most people believed in evil spirits. So again, I tell people, I, I don't think I'm out of the mainstream. <laughs> Maybe you are. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, th I like how you drove home the point that when we think about possession, most people think possession and that's it, but there's also oppression. And there's two different forms of what happened. And possession is a lot less, is a lot more rare than oppression. A lot of people can be, have these things happen to them. Can you describe the difference between those two things? Well, there are all these different categories and sometimes people use different terminology. And nobody is saying, George, remember the old Flip Wilson show, The Devil Made Me Do It? Yeah. Are you old enough to remember that? I can't. You know, I'm not saying that everybody who struggles with, uh, you know, what we would call sinful behavior or, or outright evil behavior. You know, you can't go around blaming the devil. But there are these different levels of attack by evil spirits. Some people do get tempted. Uh, I think that that is, that is something that evil spirits try to do. They try to corrupt human beings. Uh, sometimes at the other end of the spectrum, they can take over the personality for a while. Now, they tend to come and go. Well, I won't say come and go, but they tend to submerge themselves at times. So it's you can be talking to a possessed person and they may act perfectly normal until they go into this trance, which especially happens during an exorcism. And then the demonic voice emerges. Then there's this middle category that at least in America, we mostly call oppressions. And there are external oppressions where the person like uh, the character in the book I call Maria, that was that first woman I talked about who claimed she was beaten up by evil spirits. She had the bruises to show for it. Right. Uh, other people report to me, uh, you know, I'm choked, I'm scratched, um, pushed, pushed against the wall. That's what we call an external oppression, at least what I call an external oppression. Then there are internal type of attacks too which again, I use the term in the book, other people use different terms, I call internal oppression. And that's where people's evil spirits have some ability. Now, again, they're, they're, 
their power is limited, but they have some ability to attack certain people who make themselves vulnerable uh, in their senses or even in their imagination. They can plant ideas in people's heads or images. They can also sometimes take away uh, or influence somebody's um, uh, senses. If you remember the character, I, the, the woman I call Catherine in the book, she couldn't hear anything, but it was very selective. She could not hear anything of a spiritual nature. So if you said to her, as I did on a number of occasions, Catherine, did you go to the store this morning? Yes, Dr. Gallagher. Catherine, um, did you go to church this morning? I can't hear what you're saying. What did you say? And it was an attempt by evil spirits to make sure that she didn't get spiritual help or advice. So this psychiatric colleague of mine, we had this bright idea. Let's write it on a piece of paper, right? So on a piece of paper, we wrote, what did you buy at the store this morning? And she would verbally then say to us, as she saw this piece of paper, well, I got some potatoes and some and some beef. Again, this woman was possessed. She was still a very good cook. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, uh, I, I we wrote on a piece of paper, uh, Catherine, did you pray today? And she looked at me kind of quizzically, a little disappointingly, and said, Dr. Gallagher, why are you showing me a blank piece of paper? So it's remarkable, but the evil spirits in her case, in many ways to discourage or to intimidate her, the way the word you used before, they would be able to selectively block some of her hearing and even some of her sight. So there are these weird but powerful pieces of evidence that, again, make someone like myself who goes into it with a little bit of skepticism, obviously convinced that this goes beyond, this goes beyond, uh, you know, material reality. Yeah. So we got a, we got a question from our, one of our listeners here, Dr. Gallagher, and they want to know from Benjamin George, can you define evil? What does evil mean to you? Uh, Boy, that's a that's a philosophical question. <laughs> it is, and as your as your audience probably knows, people have uh, debated uh, that issue uh, for millennia. Yeah, I, I I think the common sense definition of the term is 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 reasonable. It's it's people who are doing um, behavior that is truly destructive, and in, in some sense, to, even to themselves, but certainly to other people. And uh, do good and evil exist? Again, this is a, sort of one of those commonsensical things. It's very hard to convince people of those concepts uh, if if they're skeptical of it. But I, I think the vast majority of the human race has always believed in some notion of good things and bad things. You know, uh, murder is a bad thing. Right. You know, helping people who are sick is a good thing. So we all have some uh, basic sense of good and evil. Yeah, in the book, the, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the book is called Demonic Foes. It's a, it's a great read. You check it out. I just wanted to get the title out there so everybody can go. It's out in stores right now. But would you? it seems to me that in a lot of the cases you laid out, and let's be clear, not every case that you investigated ended up being somebody that was possessed. You did a great job at going through and, and talking about the cases. Here's a person that was. Here's a person that wasn't. Here's a person that may have been. Here's a person that definitely wasn't. And I like the way you laid that out there. It seems to me in quite a few of the cases, the people that actually were possessed, if we take your definition of evil, 
you know, someone who is has malicious intent or is is, you know, there's murder, there's death. A lot of these people that were possessed, whether it was Speedy or whether it was, you know, Julia, they were up to what I would agree with were some evil practices. It's almost like, you know, there's that old saying that you have to invite the vampire in. It's almost like you have to invite this evil spirit in. And it seems like a lot of people did that. Well, uh, again, it's, it's certainly not everybody, but there are right. just a certain amount of people Again, in every society uh, who have done something like that, there was a famous book by a German professor. It was uh, pre-Nazi era, who uh, was an amazing psychologist as well as a historian. And he gives reference to literally thousands of cases throughout history and references. In fact, his book very much influenced uh, William Peter Blatty's um, novel, novelistic treatment of a, of, of a case, uh, which was also actually also based somewhat on, on a, a boy in Maryland who got possessed. So, and, and he had, this boy had turned, for instance, to contacting dead spirits, and which, which we generally believe are demons who just pretend to be dead spirits. And, um, on the other hand, once the dark world, you might say, does people a favor, it's a little bit like getting involved with the media, with the, uh, with the media. Getting involved with the mafia. You know, once same you're thing, involved with thing. the mafia, once they've done you a favor, man, they don't want to let you go. And that that's what it's like when you turn to evil, when you turn to explicitly occult stuff, the demonic world feels they have their fingers in you and they don't want to let you go. And then, yeah. it, then it takes a major effort, a reform of your life as well as, as, as well as ideally, you know, say the prayers of the, of, of a church or something. It makes me wonder. It almost sounds like when, you know, I have such a primitive idea of, of what heaven and hell are. And sometimes it almost seems as if, it's just a different dimension, and there are ways to cross that dimension, whether it's through spiritual practice, drug use, you know, um, extreme tragedy. But it seems like there is this dimension that you can cross and almost interact with. And maybe it's through extreme power. We hear these things like power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's kind of the same reference as the mafia getting into you or this power or greed or fear. Like there's so many of these emotions that seem to transcend these different dimensions. I'm wondering how, what's your idea of, of heaven or hell? And do you, could it be a dimensional thing where we're crossing back all the time? Well, I do, I do believe these are, the, these are realities. In other words, you know, these, these evil spirits, they come from somewhere. They're certainly not coming from heaven. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the traditional teaching is interestingly that uh, just as human beings have freedom and, you know, somebody can become a Mother Teresa and somebody can become a Hitler, evil spirits or spirits, which we as Christians tend to believe uh, were fallen angels, that these angels, some of them rebelled. And then, you know, the phrase is they go to their own place. The, the, the underlying truth basically is that God respects human beings 
and any creature he makes so much that he allows us to be free. And he doesn't force himself on people. And if people choose to go their own way to turn to, you know, extreme selfishness or, 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 or even worse, evil and stuff, he doesn't force himself on it, on them. And they go to some other alternate, you could call it a dimension, I suppose, George. They go to some alternate reality. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it's interesting, too. I, I think you referenced Edgar Casey in there, too, how he was able to utilize the same kind or at least a similar kind of remote viewing to see the future, the past or other people's lives. And I, I'm wondering, it seems to me that in a lot of the stories that, that are told about possession or oppression, that it, it can be evil spirits pretending to be something else. But I'm wondering, have you ever encountered the opposite? Have you ever encountered maybe a saint or a, a good spirit that has gone and influenced people? Well, sure. I, I think when you talk about non-material realities, because that's what we're talking here. Right, right. Like modern that. science, and I, I believe in modern science. I believe in evolution. I believe in the Big Bang. Uh, I couldn't be a good doctor without believing in lab studies and science. But there is a there is a, a realm of human. Um, there's a realm of reality that goes beyond simple materialism. Right. Uh, science is based on a technical term, methodological naturalism. You know, we we've learned a lot by just treating things subject to science and experiments. But the 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 evidence from history is important too. History and phenomena seen in history is not unscientific. You're not unscientific by believing in possession or for that matter in the supernatural that, you know, some people have experienced something, um, visitation from God right. or something uh, or an angel or something. I, I, I believe in those realities too. And, and they kind of counterbalance each other. And in some ways uh, we're in the middle and we still have our freedom and we're still choosing whether we're going to follow, as Lincoln said, the better angels of our nature or whether we're going to uh, succumb to more destructive life. I like that a lot. I, as, so this is going to be, this is an interesting question I've been thinking about. It seems to me that lately with everything going on right now, whether it's, it's, it seems to me there's been this thing in education, in, in work, in life, in everyone's life for the last maybe since the industrial revolution that we have just gotten so specific. We've really moved into this idea of specialization. And in doing so, we've really been unable to communicate with each other. And it seems to me we're seeing this reunification of science and spirituality now more than ever. And I'm sad that those two things have come so far apart because it seems at one time they were a whole, like the scientific community was part of the spiritual community. And they've gotten so far away that they don't talk to each other. Do you see it kind of coming back together? I see this book as kind of a as a way to mend fences a little bit and say yes and yes. Well, it's hard to know. I mean, I, don't, I certainly don't want to be personally grandiose right. about the subject. I, I do think that um, in in history, there you look at a country like Iran today. Not to get too political, you know, there are religious abuses too. Right. There are there are. Um, religions that have uh, even like the, the priest abuse in the Catholic Church, there, there are religions that have had 
a uh, less savory side. Right. Uh, so in the Enlightenment period, which sort of what you're talking about, people began to have the freedom and maybe the prosperity to make up their own philosophy. I do think it swung too much in certain countries um, to a kind of mindless secularism and to the idea that there was sort of science and then there was faith and the two never meet. There's nothing unscientific about anything I write about in the book. So yes, I'm, I'm one of many, many people who maybe are calling for some rapprochement between the scientific field and the spiritual field. And these people, you know, should be talking to, to each other. I don't see any contradiction in anything I write about that uh, it's, it's not George, like I'm taking things on blind faith. Right. You know, I'm examining these things. I'm saying what is by far, in my opinion, by far, in my opinion, the most likely explanation. And, um, you know, I think, I think my beliefs are, as reasonable as anybody else's, certainly. Yeah, it's. Is there ever any any sort of difficulty in trying to measure? Like, it seems to me like that's a big part of science. Is okay. How do we measure this? And I'm curious, like, how in the idea of exorcism do you manage or or measure someone's level of possession? Is that is that an issue? Well, certainly there are more dramatic possessions than sure. others. I think Julia was an incredible one. I think because she was a, a Satanist, especially the evil spirits, would yeah. create a lot of fireworks. So there are degrees of of demonic attack, whether it's possession or oppression or even temptation, probably with some people. Having said that, um, you, you can't subject this stuff because it's spiritual. You cannot subject this stuff to normal experimentations. But again, that doesn't mean it's, it's unscientific. People have tried and uh, more than one person has said to me, you know, Dr. Gallagher, why don't you videotape the sessions? Mm -hmm. Now that's discouraged, at least in the Catholic church, number one. But number two, you're videotaping spirits who have their own they have their own abilities. They have their own knowledge. They're not going to let you tape something very dramatic so that you can put it on ABC News that night. You know, they're, they're going to hide themselves at the same time that they try to scare certain people. So you can't subject to it to a lab experiment. I've even had people, and uh, this is pretty remarkable when you think about the strategy involved, on the evil spirit's be, uh, behalf. I've had people who have, uh, usually Protestant friends of mine, who have taped a very dramatic exorcism, where they'll get something like um, some remarkable features that would convince an awful lot of people. And then they say to me, you know, Dr. Gallagher, I wanted to play it for you, but the tape was erased. So you're dealing with crafty entities that have a certain amount of power and have a certain amount of power to obscure themselves. It's almost like a paradox, right? Because on the one hand, 
they're revealing themselves in certain contexts, but they're being very selective about it. They're also trying to conceal and confuse the people themselves. And this is why I think, you know, throughout history, they've often pretended right. to be something else. You go to you go to a Catholic exorcism, and often the the evil spirit, you know, the priest will ask who the evil spirit is, and the evil spirit will say, "Well, I'm uh, Nero, or I'm Judas Iscariot." <laughs> but what eventually happens is, and it's a good sign, is they're forced eventually to tell the truth. They don't, they don't want to reveal themselves because they don't want to submit to human beings. So it's a good thing when they have to finally, as they always do. They have to finally reveal who they really are because then they feel humiliated. They've had to submit to, to the prayers of the church and to uh, God's power, which, which, of course, is precisely what they don't want to do. It's precisely why they're in the situation they are in the first place, that they've rebelled. That's fascinating to me. It, it's almost, if we, you know, I, I believe that the spirit resides in us. And it seems to me that what you described is that if you can get the demonic entity to admit the truth to you, it's almost like the same way we can get someone who has a mental issue to begin seeing the truth. So too, if we can get the demonic entity to see the truth, it weakens them where, it, where the individual, it kind of empowers them. Is there some sort of parallel there? Well, again, to a doctor, you've raised a lot of uh, complicated <laughs> issues. I, I don't want I don't want to oversimplify my right, right. in this area, but I but I but I do think that remarkably, um, because it sounds irrational, I sometimes compare evil spirits to cosmic terrorists. Oh, I like that. Remember, remember when we were kids? You know, you didn't really think that. I don't know. You didn't think that a president would be assassinated. Or you didn't think that um, terrorists would come in and blow up a building in New York City. But then, then we've become, in, in some sense, um, more realistic as a society that there are these terrible human beings. Right. Well, it's the same thing on a cosmic level. There are these terrible evil spirits. Strange as it sounds, number one, there's evidence for them. And number two, in trying to explain them, it appears that they, first of all, they, they basically think we're their inferiors. I mean, to them, we're just evolved monkeys. I remember uh, Julia <laughs> went into a trance once and she, she called Father Jacques. He said, you monkey priest, you know, leave her, al leave, her, leave her alone, you'll be sorry. So to them, we're like, you know, we're like pets almost, you know, and they feel they can abuse us. But what they're really attacking is they're really attacking us as made in the image of God. They're really attacking God because in some ways they realize, in my opinion, this is my opinion, it's a theological opinion. They kind of realize that they made a bad choice, but they're still not sorry for it. In other words, they, they, they do not renounce what they do. They didn't accept, they don't accept any responsibility. And again, it's like it's like a terrorist, right? Mm -hmm. They think they're they think they're they're doing the right thing, even though we know they're doing something very evil. And they're not about to say, "Oh, you know, I'm sorry." <laughs> well, okay. So what about this? Like, because if if we look at terrorists, like, you know, I once heard it said that a, a 
crime fighter fights crime, a firefighter fights fire, a freedom, what does a freedom fighter fight? So if we look at terrorists, like a terrorist probably thinks they're doing the right thing if they're bombing a building because they're freeing their country or something like that. Right. Do you think it's the similar for, for like a, uh, for a demon? Is he, does he maybe, I mean, how would you know? But I mean, just in your opinion, is that still similar? Does that, does that example still hold? It, it, the, 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 general, the general teaching about fallen angels, if you really want to get into theology, yeah. Let's do it. Is that they are very intelligent, much more intelligent than we are. Right. Yeah, you know, we all think we're pretty smart guys, right? But you know, they know an awful lot. They by the way, they don't know the future. Only God mm. knows the future. So even when somebody says I can predict the future or uh, you know, I know what's gonna happen to you, that may be a very good guess. And they're very good guesses because they know a lot. But on the other hand, uh, the general teaching is that they made their decision and it's irrevocable. They decided, hey, I'm not going to submit. I'm not going to submit to God. Uh, I want my own realm. You know, Satan, Satan appears to want to be worshipped and he has some people who worship him. So uh, what did Milton, the, 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 the poet, said, better to reign in hell than uh, serve in heaven. There are people who just refuse to um, want to claim that anybody else, God, whoever, has any authority over them. And then uh, I think there's a biblical phrase, they, they go to their own place and they suffer the consequences. But they're not about to say, oh, sorry, I made a mistake. Sorry, <laughs> sorry God, I, 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 I acted stupidly. Forgive me and uh, bring me into heaven. Then they're, they're not about to say that, which is why they remain in the state they are. Man, it's it's. <clears throat> I find it fascinating. I really enjoy thinking and learning, and I, I, I think. <clears throat> excuse me. The book's called Demonic Foes, ladies and gentlemen. If you really want to learn about some true life things that are happening all around you that you may not get to see. You should read Dr. Richard Gallagher's book, Demonic Foes, because it's really fascinating and it's it gets into the history of things. And I think it's <clears throat> I think it's important to note that in your book, you you did come across and document many people who felt as if they were possibly possessed, but in fact, maybe just had some mental issues. Would you say that that's the majority of the cases or the minority of the cases? I think it's a majority of cases who uh, who think they're possessed. Now you gotta you gotta remember I I'm a, I'm a very busy psychiatrist. I, I used to run the uh, the emergency services for my county. I'm not going around diagnosing <laughs> your average person as right. possessed. So, but there are there are people who feel that they're attacked by spirits. The schizophrenic patient who's hearing a voice of an evil spirit, or maybe the FBI, or maybe you know, the communists, yep. they have a brain disorder or, or, and or some people just kind of imagine that they're attacked or they want to blame evil spirits for their problems. So there are a lot of those people, George. On the other hand, the cases I see are usually people who they've often spoken to a clergy already. They've often read a little bit about this subject they're more credible group of people in asking me, could you evaluate that? And in those 
in those cases, surprisingly, now again, we're talking about many, many years and we're talking about people from all over the world. In those cases, actually many, many of those people are in fact demonically attacked one way or another. But that's very different than say, you know, the private patients I've had. I mean, I've, I've treated thousands and thousands of psychiatric patients, you know. I've never had a situation where I, I, somebody comes into my office and I say, oh, surprise. <laughs> and, and the average person should not, should not worry about getting possessed or something. Yeah, I, I like how I, there's so many cool little I feel like I got to learn a lot about neurological disorders when I read the book, too. And, you know, you talk about how maybe schizophrenics hear things a certain way versus someone who is depressed would hear it a certain way. And I really like the way you did some mind mapping in there that allowed people to to really dig into it. Ladies and gentlemen, the book's called Demonic Foes. And if you get a chance, I promise you, if you read it, not only will you be entertained, you'll probably be a little frightened, but you'll be happy that you read it. At least I was. And uh, Dr. Richard Gallagher, we're coming up on an hour right here. And I, I just want to say thank you for your time. And what do you got coming up? Um, do you have any speaking gigs coming up? Where can people find you? And what are you excited about? Well, I am pretty excited that uh, Jason Blum of Blumhouse approached me. And you know, he's a pretty big uh, mocker, if you know the term, of, in Hollywood. And he's done a lot of, uh, a lot of good genre movies. And he said this is the hottest topic he's ever he's ever encountered. So we are putting out a movie. I always do some speaking. I, George, in, in some ways, sad to say, I don't always make it so easy to get a hold of me because I would be inundated. You know, I, I <laughs> yeah, guaranteed hundreds of calls. Um, but you know, I'm always writing and seeing patients, and uh, trust me, I keep myself busy. I can imagine. Are you going to be able to, uh, <clears throat> the movie sounds exciting and I'm curious, are, are you going to be able to retain some sort of oversight to kind of keep it as authentic to the book as you can? Uh, you never know. You're dealing with Hollywood. You're dealing yeah. with corporate America. I obviously, uh, expect that it'll be a credible movie because otherwise I think it destroys the whole point of the movie. And I think Jason is, uh, is on board with that. I am executive producer. Nice. But uh, executive producer is sort of whatever they decide <laughs> to make of it. So, yes, I certainly have input. I'm trying. I'm trying to help make it a very credible movie. We'll see. Maybe you and I can talk in two years or so when it comes out, and I'll I'll tell you whether I'm happy with the movie or not. Oh, I would love that. I would love it. I, you know, I think it's important to probably give some credit to your wife and your family here. Had I had I brought Julia to my house, my wife would have punched me right in the face. <laughs> well, I didn't <laughs> want to tell the neighbors, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. And there's for late for everyone listening, we just barely scratched the surface of, of what's in this book. It's it's a great read. You should pick it up. Uh, usually the books are, are better than the movies, but I have no doubt with who's the executive producer and the people making the movie, the movie's going to be awesome. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I would love for you to come back sometime and you always have an open line at the True Life Podcast. Dr. Richard Gallagher, is there anything else you want to leave people with before we go? Well, I appreciate you doing a very thoughtful interview for us. So thank you for the invitation, George. The pleasure's all mine. And ladies, again, ladies and gentlemen, one more time, the book is called Demonic Foes. Check it out, Dr. Richard Gallagher. 
Um, you're going to love it. It's going to be scary, you know, so it's going to, it's going to make you think about things that you may not want to think about. And as a disclaimer, there is some stuff in there that's pretty disturbing. I'm not saying that Dr. Richard Gallagher purposely tried to disturb you, but some of the things that he dealt with will be mind blowing. I had to set the book down for a minute and just like, okay, I got to stop. So ladies and gentlemen, go buy the book. You're going to love it. Check out the movie and keep an eye on Dr. Richard Gallagher. He's an amazing man. Doctor, thank you so much for your time today. I hope you have a fantastic day. Aloha. Very welcome. Very welcome. Same to you.
close at hand Creatures crawl in search of blood To terrorize your neighborhood And whosoever shall be found Without the soul for getting down Must stand and face the hounds of hell And rot inside a corpse's shell taking a moment to hang out with me in the true life podcast i truly appreciate it if you're taking some time to listen to this whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way i truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart additionally i would like to try to inspire everyone the world is a crazy place and if you listen to your heart and you take some chances i really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine i've been doing the podcast for about five years Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision and I hope you all conquer it and I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better, your life will be better and you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it. <laughs> 